what do you do if your life improvement project has turned into something that you might actually see a nailed it meme attached to? Uh, that's a question we are grappling with today at Bible Shots. Uh, so if you've joined us, welcome. Uh, I'm Lachlan, I work with City Bible Forum, uh, and whether you're joining us from your lounge room, your kitchen, your office, or wherever it is, uh, we're glad to have you joining us for Bible Shots. Uh, City Bible Forum runs Bible Shots because we think the Bible is something relevant and important to say, uh, and so we set time aside during the week to hear that. And it's a Bible shot because, well, we hope that like an espresso shot, uh, it is full of flavour, uh, punchy, and leaves you feeling a bit energised for the rest of your afternoon. Uh, if you've been with us before, you'll know it's a pretty simple format. We hear a part of the Bible read, uh, we hear a talk on that part of the Bible, and then we have time for Q&A afterwards. Uh, we're continuing our series, Renovating Life in Troubled Times, and today we have talk number three, Building for the Future. Uh, if you were here last week, or you listened to the last talk, you'll know that it raised a few questions that were left hanging over, and uh, we're gonna be getting stuck into those today. Uh, not everyone who joins us for Bible Shots would say they are a follower of Jesus. As long as you're happy to consider what the Bible has to say, though, we're glad to have you joining us, either live or uh, joining in the conversation later, uh, watching one of the videos. Um, and so as long as you're happy to engage civilly, we'd love to have you engage uh, during Q&A time. Uh, the easiest way to do that uh, is through the Zoom chat. But if you're joining us on Facebook Live, you should be able to put questions uh, into the comments section and, uh, and one of the staff from City Bible Forum will forward those through to me. Uh, now, Steve, you are our uh, speaker today. Uh, again, uh, welcome back. Now, Thank you. Uh, some of the people who've been waiting in the meeting room will have already heard a little bit about your day as we've been chatting. Um, just give us a quick, a quick summary. You know, how have you been surviving isolation? What has your day been filled with at the moment? And what's the passage that we're looking at? Because I forgot to ask you that before we met. You did. I pull it up to read. <laughs> well, to give you some, uh, uh, some uh, breathing space, it's Haggai chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 to 9, sort of a, an Old Testament prophet in the Bible, one of the short ones, I mean two chapters, so it's chapter 2 of Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I, verses 1 to 9, and uh, someone will read that at some stage, I assume. My day's been okay, lockdown is great, I love lockdown, um, plenty of work at home, I was running this morning, and I look like I'm crying, but I'm not, I just got hit in the face with a branch, because it was dark, and uh, it wasn't like a big branch, because that would be very silly but it was just a small enough one to catch me on the eyeball as I ran under a tree. So. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that that was the uh, experience. I'm glad you, <laughs> glad you weren't injured so severely that you couldn't join us today. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, I'll read uh, from Haggai and then we'll uh, hand over to you so you can uh, yeah. uh, expose, uh, expose this part of the passage for us, uh, this part of the Bible. Uh, Haggai chapter two, starting at verse one, and I will uh, just share the screen here. Uh, so that people can read along as well. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now... Be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thank you, uh, Lachlan. Um, yeah, so if you've got that passage there, keep that open with, uh, with you. Um, well, you know you've nailed it when your meme becomes a TV series, I think. Um, you might have seen the meme, nailed it, and it's, it's very funny. And it started off, I think, as a, uh, cakes that were baked by people at home uh, that were supposed to look like the elaborate expert version in the book, particularly uh, birthday cakes for children that were supposed to look happy and joyous and turned out looking like something from a horror movie. And these memes were excruciating and funny and uh, there was frosting dripping everywhere over the cakes and the grimaces where smiles were supposed to be. The reality of what they had in front of them looked nothing like the promise. But uh, to show that uh, this meme had nailed it, Netflix show Nailed It has come along to take that to another level. And you guessed it, it's a cake baking show. The meme comes to life. Um, now, first question I'd ask is who'd want to put themselves out there, <laughs> given how often you don't nail it with this cake baking. But there's prizes for people who get the cake to look exactly or almost like the expert cake at the finish. Nailed it. How often do you look at the finished product, not simply of a cake, but say of your life or your relationships or your career, and you sigh with a deep irony and not a little pain as you go, nailed it. My life, my life is not like the ads. It's not like the Facebook pictures. In fact, my relationships don't rise like a sponge cake. They fall flat like a pancake. Uh, I got to that firm or that job after university, and guess what? I thought I'd nailed it, but I'm stressed. I'm overworked, I'm undervalued or underpaid. Nailed it. It doesn't exactly look like the recipe book. My life doesn't look like the blueprint. Uh, the job I have or the house I live in doesn't look like the glossy advert. Now this is true on a deep level in our lives, I think, whether you're a Christian here today or whether you're not. The me I want to be, the projection of what I would be like if all the pieces fell into place seems a long way off from where I am. And the more I pursue it, uh, the harder it seems to be. Even the change agents in my life, whether that's your faith or perhaps the therapy sessions you've had in which a counselor gives you the ingredients for being the best you that you can be. Well, you know, can you really go and look at that and go, nailed it? Well, perhaps, maybe. But more often, I think, we see the gap between the ideal and who we actually are. And sometimes we're stressed or anxious or depressed, or even we get bitter about it in many ways. Now in Haggai chapter two, uh, we're told the story of the leaders and the people of Israel who are reconstructing the temple that had been destroyed in the Babylonian conquest uh, decades earlier. Uh, they had recommenced the building project after in chapter one, we found that God gave the, them the internal resolve in their spirit, it says, to start that postponed building project again. But now, while they're building and they're getting on with it and they're, all that flurry of activity has sort of uh, settled in, they're looking around at the new temple that they're building and they're saying in a slightly cynical tone, nailed it, yeah, right. This doesn't exactly look like we thought it would. 
So God speaks to the prophet Haggai again in chapter two, and he gets Haggai to ask the whole nation standing around looking at the new temple that's replaced the old magnificent one, this question. Verse three, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory, the previous temple? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Now it's former glory. God's talking about the really, really old people who went into exile in Babylon years ago and have come back and they remember the early temple. It was a magnificent cake. It was the Nigella Lawson original, all bright and shiny. And it had glory, but now the glory is former. It's in the past and God is pretty upfront with them. How does it look to you now? It looks like nothing, doesn't it? Go on, says God, admit it, people. It's okay to come out and say it. If this, were, if this new temple were a, a cake on nailed it, uh, the icing would be dripping over the sides, the edges would be burnt, and there'd be a sort of leaning tower of Pisa lopsided thing going on that you didn't intend. In other words, this new temple project looks rubbish. It'd be voted off the show of nailed it if the point was to build a temple. The temple's a mess. So much for God changing the people in chapter one to empower them to build something special. And last week, we talked about God's transforming power in people's lives, in our lives, the way that God alone can change people in a deep, radical way. Uh, I, I thought the questions at the end were really good that people were asking because they were very honest questions that you came up with, um, interesting and honest. And they were asking, if all that changed by God have come, it doesn't feel like I've nailed it in some senses. So I set this talk up to prepare, or that talk to prepare for this one, because that tension does exist. The question needs to be asked, doesn't it? How come there is so little change in my life? If I'm a Christian, how come the promise of God's glorious power doesn't look quite as glorious in practice? Perhaps another way of putting that is, how come my sin or my weakness or my addictions all seem so so well, so sinful, so weak and addictive still. That would be the way to put it. Where is this huge, amazing transformative change that everybody keeps talking about? Now that's if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian here today, you might be asking that of Christians. Yes, how come it is that you don't seem all that much more together than I do? But also, if you're not a Christian here today, and just as profoundly for you, uh, you'd have to be honest with you and say, how come I don't seem as together as I should be following the career path I've chosen, the education I've got, that enlightenment program that I went to, that anger management program, those 12 steps I took, that weekend away where I was supposed to find myself, or even that white knuckled resolve I have not to do that thing, whatever that thing is for you, again. In other words, how come after all that effort, external and internal, not that much seems to have changed. I totally feel like the nailed it meme. Uh, am I the, is that anyone else here or is that just me? Because that's how I feel often. I feel like that cynical, humorous, nailed it meme. Well, I want to draw three things from this passage today uh, to deal with that. The first thing to draw from this passage, the first of three, is that if you feel like that, God totally gets it. He totally gets that nailed it thing that we feel. And he's up front with the people, isn't he? This new temple, it seems like nothing, right? Go on, admit it. 
You can't even squint and see it anywhere near like the original. Now, what's going on there is incredible. God is not surprised by our weakness or our lack of change or our slow change pace. Now, we might want to bluff others with that. I think we do about the renovation projects in our lives. Oh, yes, I'm doing really, really well. Didn't I tell you how well I'm doing? Do you want to see the photos of how well I'm doing? And maybe we can bluff people. But God gets part of it here, doesn't he? Uh, does it not seem like nothing to you? Yes, it does seem like nothing to me, God. It actually seems like nothing to me. And at that level that God, in this passage of the Bible, knows the people better than they know themselves, yet still comes to them and asks them how they're going. That's a huge thing, that God knows them that deeply and they're still his people. Which kind of brings to the second observation that I want to make about this passage. God's first response to Israel as they make this nailed it mean cake temple is not rebuke. It's not an exasperated sigh or even mockery. Oh, look how they're nailing it. That's ridiculous. Let's take a photo of that angels and let's put it up online. Yeah, you know, I thought about this in terms of food again. The worst person from mockery and that exasperated put down sigh is Gordon Ramsay, yeah? Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> Nicely named. Because Gordon Ramsay comes to a place and there's fear. The minute Gordon Ramsay and all his six foot three, uh, sort of Scottish accent nastiness turns up, it feels belittling. You can see the workers and the owners of the restaurants that he goes to in Hell's Kitchen curl up and die. It's cringeworthy. And Gordon throws his not inconsiderable weight around, effing and blinding and huffing and puffing, grabbing a spoon or a whisk. Oh, give it to me. I know what I'm doing. And you can see people just shrink. And when you're struggling, when your miserable attempts at change would make a great meme or a Netflix show or a place for Gordon Ramsay types to turn up and sort of throw their weight around in your emotional kitchen, God isn't saying, oh, for goodness sake, get out of the way, let me do it. God is not some sort of cosmic Gordon Ramsay constantly ready to cut you down in order to boost his ratings. Look what God says in verses four and five. It's a deep word of comfort. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, that's the governor, declare the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. This is what I covenanted with you, promised to you, when you came out of Egypt, the land of slavery, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Be strong. Do not fear. God doesn't say it because you are powerful to change you. He says it because he's powerful to carry the weight. He's powerful to change. This is what I covenanted, he said. This is what I promised when I rescued you, when you were just slaves in Egypt. You couldn't rescue yourself. I did that. My spirit remains among you. I didn't leave you and see if you could work it out for yourself and then come back. He said, my spirit remains among you. I'm not leaving you. Whether the temple looks great or it looks like nailed it, I'm with you. In other words, your relationship with me, says God, is not based on your performance. Your relationship with me is based on my promise. Can you see how liberating that is? 
can you see how that could take away your fear that even in the life where you think I haven't changed that much, or I feel like it's two steps forward and one step back. That's what God in his love and kindness and grace is like. The other night, as usual, I said goodnight to my son as he was in bed. Um, he's 12. And as I usually say, I just say as I walk out of the room, Jesus loves you. And he came back the other day and said, do you think he really does, Dad? Do you think he really does? And my son suffers a little bit of anxiety. I turned around and sat next to him and I said, well, you know, it says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 in the Bible, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we hadn't nailed it. <laughs> We'd gone in the opposite direction even. And I said to him, if God loved us enough to do that for us when we were rejecting him, how much more now does he love us now that we belong to him? And that was enough for him. You see, do you know, do you know the biggest fear in our culture? Being found out. <laughs> Being found out and shamed for it because this is a shame culture in the Western world at the moment. Douglas Murray in his book, The Madness of Crowds, says that social media, because it never forgets, can drag up stuff that we'd have hoped had been forgotten. And it can flay us mercilessly. You see people lose their jobs uh, because of a Twitter uh, comment 10 years ago. We can live through our own mini cancel culture as the shame of our past stays around forever and says, actually, you can't change. You haven't changed. And Douglas Murray puts it like this in his book. We are destined to be judged by our worst joke. We desperately want to post a picture of our glossy cake book life, the sparkling professional success. And then someone either pulls out a meme or you pull out a memory from your own mind of yourself in your worst moments and you go, nailed it. And we spiral into shame again. God's not like that. God says to his people as they're stumbling along, don't be afraid. I'm you better than anyone could possibly know you. And still I'm saying to you, trust me, don't fear. And that's truly liberating. So that's two observations. The last observation. What does God go on to do from there? Well, he goes on to give his people, Israel, a hope for the future that is not grounded in their performance. It's a hope that... He's going to take that nailed it meme and turn it into a wedding cake of such splendor that they're going to go, wow, I didn't do that. That's not me. He goes on to say, you know, this crummy house you're building, I'm going to make it glorious. Now he says there in verse uh, six, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. Now, that's simply a way of God saying, I'm going to do something big. I'm going to do something big. And he says, I'm going to come and fill the temple with glory and I will grant peace in this place. The two things they've got are shame and fighting and war. And he's going to bring glory and peace. Now, what is this little while or this time that God is talking about? When will the temple look like a glorious building, like the Nigella Lawson cake? Well, if you look through history, it shows that Herod the Great, who was one of the uh, puppet kings of Rome, uh, but set in the place of uh, the king of Israel at the time, 
uh, completed a huge renovation project on this second temple that was being rebuilt back in Haggai's day. And he, he made it look amazing. It was like one of those renovation shows where, you know, the, the home handyman is really not very good at stuff. Uh, put your hand up at this point again. Uh, and they get some expert, they phone him and he comes and he shames the hubby and the wife standing there going like this. And uh, he comes in and he literally nails it. He takes all the problems out, he fixes it up and makes it look amazing. The before and after shots are huge. But you know what? The way Herod did that was simply for Herod's glory. This earthly king was puffed up with his own importance and wanted a legacy for his name. So he filled the temple with his glory. And God says this, you know what? Even the silver and gold that you would use to build this temple belongs to me anyway. Here's what I'll do, says God. I will fill it with my glory and my peace. And here's what happens. One day, Jesus Christ comes to the temple in Jerusalem. The gospel stories of Jesus' life and ministry describe this event in several places, that Jesus comes to the temple on several times in his earthly ministry life. Jesus is the one who's described as the desire of all the nations. And as you unpack the story of the New Testament, you realize that Jesus is the glory of God. It says that at the start of the Gospel of John. We're told in another place in the New Testament that Jesus is God's true place of worship. If you want to worship God, you come to Jesus. And Jesus is God's true place of sacrifice. All those things happened in the temple. And uh, even though Haggai couldn't see it, we see it now that Jesus is the fulfillment of the true temple. He is, we are told also, the friend of the sinners, the friends of those who say, nailed it. I've mucked it up again. See, when it comes to someone who's amazing, who's the perfect blueprint of a human, he's, Jesus is the cake book version, if you like, the one of whom we can say nailed it and actually mean it. Only Jesus is that. The God who fully, fully gets what we are like doesn't get exasperated and give up on us like some grumpy Gordon Ramsay. He sends the perfect human who always nailed it in his life did everything right, said everything right, never did anything wrong, always loved, always served, always nailed it. And guess what happens to this perfect human? This is this really interesting thing here. He gets nailed on a cross for us. On the cross of Jesus, God nails it, so to speak, because he deals with our inability to change, not just once, but on an ongoing basis. The Bible tells us about Jesus that he was tempted in every way that we are as humans, every chance we have of mucking it up and not nailing it, but without sin, it says. He nailed it. So if that's true of Jesus, what should you do? Avoid him because he's too perfect? Refuse him because he would not want you? Bluff him and pretend it's all shiny? No. Time and time again, the Bible tells us to come to him, come to Jesus it says in the letter of Hebrews in the New Testament, come confidently to the throne of grace. What a great term. The throne is not a throne of judgment. The throne here is a throne of grace in time of need to find mercy and grace when we need it. In other words, come to Jesus when you haven't nailed it. When you know it, that Jesus has 
And he holds out his nail scarred hands to us and says, do not fear, trust me in your time of need. And one day when this age is all over, the promise of the Bible is that the change that's always just in front of us as human beings will be realized in us, not by our power, but by the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus given to us. And that meme will finally look like the Nigella Lawson code book and we can say nailed it. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Steve. Uh, we will have some time for questions in just a moment. Uh, but while we give Steve a chance to catch his breath, maybe grab some water and a chance for you to uh, type your questions. Um, let me explain how to engage in Q&A time. Uh, if you're in our Zoom meeting, which is probably the easiest way, uh, there's the Q&A box down the bottom uh, of, your, of your bar there. You can type your questions to me there and I'll ask them to Steve on your behalf. Uh, alternatively, if you're joining us via Facebook Live, you can type your questions into the comments section below uh, and one of our uh, staff is monitoring it and she will uh, try to send those to me so I can ask them to Steve as well. Uh, while you're sending those through, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, tomorrow night, City Bible Forum is hosting our uh, Next Edge event. Uh, the topic is Fear the Future. And let me pull up that. The topic is Fear the Future. It's going to be an online uh, discussion with uh, Sam Chan uh, as one of our key speakers who works with City Bible Forum. And It'll be running from 7.39 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, and you can register at citybibleforum.org for the link. Uh, it's a free event, uh, and uh, we would love for you to come. It's sort of TED-style talks and a Q&A panel, uh, and it would be a great thing for people who uh, maybe wouldn't come along to a, a Bible talk like this, um, but might still like to think a little bit more carefully about some of the big issues we're grappling with in society uh, and consider how the Bible actually has something relevant to contribute to that discussion. And tomorrow night, we are talking about uh, fear of the future. So we'd love you to come along uh, and join us. Uh, don't forget to register. Uh, also, if you're not currently on our mailing list and would like to be helpful in case there's uh, updates or changes that we need to let you know about, uh, you can jump onto the City Bible Forum website uh, and the, the, the Bible Shots page and there's a, a contact there with my name on it that you can uh, send your details through to and say, I would like to be on the mailing list. Uh, that is the easiest way to get on. But we want to jump into Q&A time now. Uh, we've got a couple of questions that have been coming up. So Steve, we are over to you. Um, now, a couple of questions coming through here. Um, one was, oh, so Steve, what is your process when you look at your life and think nailed it? Um, and then is it normal to, to experience uh, an emotional lag? Um, I'm assuming that means to start feeling yeah. better about it. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly, that's a great question. Um, I, I think our first thing we do when we don't nail it is panic. And that's perhaps, and then the, when you panic, the first thing you do is you get a fight or flight mechanism going on. And you either, I'm going to fight through this or I'm going to, um, the fight mechanism I think that we do uh, existentially is we say, I'm going to repair this. I'm going to fix this up the way I need to. I'm going to do better the next time. And I'm going to make up for that lack by trying harder. For Christians, that's often something we do. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. And if, it's, if you're not a Christian, it could be, I'm just going to try that thing more or that thing more, or discipline my life here more or there, whatever. Or it's the flight mechanism, which is denial. <laughs> and we lower the bar a little bit. Oh, well, you know, I'm like up then. And both of them are uh, to try and deal with the cognitive dissonance of having mucked up. As a Christian, 
uh, as I read the Bible, it, it says neither of those responses are that helpful because they don't um, empower you to actually make any change. Guilt's a great motivator, but it doesn't actually change you. Um, any number of addiction programs and 12-step programs would tell you that. Um, what the Bible tells us to do is come to Jesus in your time of need, come to the one who did nail it and say, and ask for forgiveness and strength and power to change. Now, the change process in the human, in, 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 for us as humans, isn't a case, I think, often you're very sinful and then you become a Christian, everything's okay. There's like two chairs. There's the, I've fallen and now I've been saved, for want of a better term. But the human condition in the Bible is that once we were uh, humans who had not fallen away from God, then we became humans who did fall away from God. God has uh, restored us to relationship with him in Christ, but that restoration isn't complete yet. And we live in the between tension of what is true of us that God has put us in a right relationship with him, but we are not perfectly um, perfected in, in resurrection yet. And the tension, the gap is there. But what it pushes us back to is say, run back to Jesus every time you do that. Don't run to do something, your good works, if that's a, better, a good way of putting it. Cool. Uh, thanks, Steve. I think we've got time for one more. Um, uh, so what should our response to other people's attempts to approve their life uh, and face nailed at moments be? Um, and is there a difference if they're followers of Jesus or not? I'm assuming that comes from a Christian. So what should our response be when other people have nailed at moments? Uh, not Gordon Ramsay, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I, Jesus tells a great story, doesn't he, of a man who uh, owes the king a small, uh, huge debt, and the king repays, uh, forgives him the debt, even though he owes him so much money. And on his way out of the king's court uh, back home, he meets a fellow servant of the king's, who owes him, not the king, owes him a small debt and he chokes him, pay me back what you owe. And it, Jesus tells the story because the man who, the king finds out and is enraged that the huge debt he forgave the other person uh, of, or him of, he, that the man could not see the relationship between how he relates to others uh, through how the king related to him. We should be treating people with, with gentleness and understanding their broken humanity or broken issue that they're in and coming alongside them. If we have to challenge people, we can challenge them. But if we're challenging someone who's a Christian, I think we, we say, look what Jesus has done for us. Look, go back to Jesus and also treat them in such a way that would uh, demonstrate that we know our own weakness. If someone's not a Christian and they're not changing in the way we would like them to change, I would say, you treat them with even more gentleness and respect. Uh, that's um, the Christian perspective on life is that we don't expect people who are not Christian to behave Christianly. Um, but we still want to be able to get alongside them and show them what change can look like. I always want to point people to Jesus, say, don't look at me because I'll, I'll show you what my life's like and it doesn't nail it very often. I don't want you to follow Christianity because I'm a good person. I'd want you to follow what Christianity is about because Jesus is a good person. So I'd always want to be pushing people to Jesus, whether Christian or not Christian, I think, at that point. Cool. Thanks, Steve. Uh, well, looking at the time, we should probably wrap things up there, but we have uh, just enough time for you to give us a little bit of a plug for next week. Uh, it doesn't feel like this was uh, part two of three. It feels like next week 
is a little bit more separate from this talk, or at least we've kind of wrapped up some of the questions we had from last week. Um, I think it was uh, unshakable foundations. What, why are we coming back next week if all our questions have been answered? Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, I think the, the, the interesting thing about the, the rest of the passage is that what it's going to go on to talk about is that even though it seems like things are settled down in Israel, uh, the, things are going to get shaken again. And maybe we're going through the COVID-19 thing going, whew, we're getting out of the other end of it. We have no idea what will come next. But part of the passage at the end is that uh, God is going to do something in the world that you know, it'll be seen by his people as shaking the world. But he wants them to remember that he has them safe. And I think that's crucial to understanding that there's a lot of confusion going on at the moment, a lot of worry and fear. Um, mental health is going to be a massive issue in the coming five years, apparently. How does God keep us firm going forward? How do the foundations, oh, how do the foundations stay solid in the midst of all that shaking? Because we don't know what's going to come next. Excellent. We'll look forward to hearing from you next week for the last week in our series here. Thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, we hope you found the talk engaging and thought provoking. Uh, don't forget that you'll be able to share it with your friends uh, via Facebook. Uh, very soon uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you same time next week until then thanks for coming